Hello, it's 10th of November 2019 and this is episode 121 of Scavenger's Horde, a Star Wars podcast. I'm Rachel. And I'm Kirsty. We're here to deliver a regular rundown of Star Wars news, analysis and commentary, with a focus on the sequel trilogy and the future of the saga. And how has your week in Star Wars been, Rachel? Pretty good. I haven't done anything massively Star Warsy, so I think I'm just like having a quiet before the storm period right now. Because obviously it's going to get so full on towards the end of November and across the whole of December that I need to like pace myself. But I did go to the Odeon Cinema yesterday to see The Good Liar, which is a fun little romp with Helen Mirren and Ian McKellen. It's not going to win any awards or break any boundaries in cinema. Um, but it's enjoyable. And before that movie, they showed a bespoke teaser for The Rise of Skywalker. Ooh. It was the most charming thing. It didn't feature any footage whatsoever from any Star Wars film. It just showed people in a cinema. And initially, it didn't tell you what was going on. It just had people in a cinema wearing slightly old-fashioned clothing. And then at the bottom, it came up saying 1977. And I was like, oh, hang on, I know what you're doing. <laughs> and then it switched to different people in the cinema. And they had a caption saying 1999. And I was like, oh, I see you. And then they switched forward again to like 2015 with even more people in a cinema. And then it was something like... We've been showing you Star Wars since the beginning. Join us for the end. Aww. And then it flashed a logo for the Rise of Skywalker at the end. And it was a bit naff, like in the 70s audience bit. You couldn't really tell they were people from the 70s. They'd <laughs> kind of tried, but not hard enough. So it yeah. didn't quite work. But yeah, it was just quite endearing. You know, it's like, oh, I, I guess. Yeah, I, I can see that. Appeal to the nostalgia card. Hopefully it will work. Yeah. I guess I hadn't thought about the fact that cinemas could run their own trailer for this event. <laughs> and I was very Probably confused. not Lucasfilm approved. Yeah, I was a bit bewildered by it, to be honest, because I was like, why don't you just show footage from the movie? <laughs> <laughs> You'd think it would be more effective, but who knows? I don't know. They assume that you've seen that already. Yeah, and to be fair, I have a theory, because The Good Liar, uh, basically, I was making a joke to the ticket counter person at the cinema and saying it's basically like the Avengers for elderly people <laughs> because it has these amazing stars in it but it's very much appealing to like an OAP crowd you know like older people and I think for those people they're less likely to be enticed by flashy explosions and all these young sexy people in elaborate settings and I think if anything's going to appeal to them, it's going to be like, oh, remember in the 1970s when you and little Jimmy went to the cinema to see Star Wars? There's going to be another one this year and it's going to be the last one. So you should come and see it. So I think it was very deliberately designed for that sort of crowd. But that's just that makes sense. Yeah, I think there's a huge nostalgia aspect leading up to this movie. Yeah, now they're all talking about it, tying in all the trilogies together. So yeah no exactly and you need to tailor your approach to different audiences and stuff so yeah seems very logical hmm. how about how about you Kirsty? did you have any time for stolesiness this week well i managed to read a whole 11 chapters of resistance reborn oh that's impressive yeah and uh, i've been reading resistance reborn as well <laughs> i mean it's it's not really impressive it's, it is an easy read i just haven't had the time sure um, yeah but I'm, I'm enjoying it and it's I don't know. I know we've had like the the comic series. Is it um, Allegiance and like the Resistance ones, the Age of Resistance? Yeah. Um, for sequel trilogy characters, but this is like 
a, you know, a real more in-depth story with these characters again. And it's set just a few days after The Last Jedi. So it's kind of really nice to to, to go back to that time. And uh, I don't know, it's, it's kind of getting you more in the mood for the movie, even though we're already excited. So it's kind of contextualizing things a bit more. And I, we'll talk about it when we finish it. We'll do a, probably a full episode or a spotlight on it. But um, yeah. I'm really enjoying Poe's story in this so far. Yeah, no, it's very open and honest about his emotions and how he processed stuff after crates. Mm. Um, which, yeah, I'm really appreciating because that's the sort of stuff I think the Rise of Skywalker is just going to have us assume he's well over that. I was going to say. Position. Uh, yeah, I'm... Yeah. I'm happy to see it explored here, but I also think you're right that it means that we're probably not going to get that in the actual movie because a year will have passed at that point, right? So yeah, um, this is him dealing with the aftermath and feeling like he has to make things right and learn from it. And um, presumably he will have done that by the time we get to the movie. So it's, like a, it's not a spoiler to say that a big part of the thrust of the plot in Resistance Reborn is how the Resistance gathered new allies and attracted people to its cause. And yeah, again, I think like the Poe thing, that's going to be because they're going to have a bunch of new allies in The Rise of Skywalker and there might be like a line of dialogue to explain it in the movie, but that's it. We're not going to get like in-depth exploration of the Resistance's recruitment efforts and where all these people and all these ships came from because that's not the place of one of these movies. That's not the story they're out to tell. So Mm -hmm. yeah, it makes sense to me to consign that to a novel. Totally. Um, but yeah, so to avoid spoiling Resistance Reborn any further, let's move on. <laughs> um, and yeah, the first thing we want to talk about is just in a broad sense how the hype for The Mandalorian is really intensifying. And we also have news on a cause that's very dear to my heart, namely the Disney Plus launch day for Western Europe. But I'll keep you in suspense about that. And for now, we'll just talk <laughs> about... Just like Disney did themselves. Yeah, no, exactly. So I'm clawing back whatever power I can in this situation by like keeping this exciting news and my opinion on it and Kirsty's opinion from you for a few more minutes. So yeah, to begin, we'd just like to talk somewhat about all the coverage and all the little teasers and stuff that have come out for The Mandalorian in the last week. So yeah, like I haven't included them in the notes, Kirsty, but there's been a bunch of new TV spots and stuff. Have you had time to watch any of those? No, I haven't watched any of them. Yeah. And I've I've seen them like floating around on Twitter and that. And I I totally could have clicked on them and seen. But I'm kind of at the point where I'm like, I know I'm going to watch this show and it's just a few days away. So I'm just going to save it. I think that's a smart approach. And like I have, I'm not even sure I've seen all of them, to be honest, but I've seen a few. And the ones I've seen, they're mostly just recut versions of the longer trailers that were released previously. Like if there is new footage, it's very brief and it's like, close-up of character's face and they might say like two words right. so yeah it's not massively insightful stuff it's just like ways of building all the hype around the show mm-hmm. which yeah is what you'd expect it's the marketing and full gear um and yeah you can tell they're investing lots of resources into this things so i've seen pictures of times square and they have these like huge like digital billboards for the mandalorian swirling around it's like, yeah, they're betting big cool. on this thing. Yeah, so perhaps most notably on the publicity front, there have been a few articles from Anthony Bresnikin in Vanity Fair. And 
there have been a few articles from Anthony Bresnikin in in Vanity Fair where he's just covering various aspects of the Mandalorian and the people involved. None of these are particularly informative about what to expect from the show. They're more just very general scene setting pieces and they're really aimed at a general readership. So, for example, there's an article about Dave Filoni and explaining how he came to be involved in Lucasfilm and why he's so liked and valued as a creator there. What did you make of that article, Kirsty? I really liked it. Um, I loved how they positioned him as Lucas's mentor. Or the other way around, sorry, Lucas as Filoni's mentor. Mm-hmm. Um, and oh, what was it that they was? They used like a teasing line like ruling the galaxy together or something <laughs> yes <laughs> <laughs> so it kind of was going for that luke and vader thing although lucas is not exactly vader but you know you know what i mean yeah the yeah i know of, what you mean uh, it's like the older generation like in the dynamic with the new and imparting knowledge and wisdom like i wonder if george ever considered cutting off dave's hand for example <laughs> i think they even explicitly in the writing anthony compared him to like oh it's what obi-wan was to luke and what han solo was to ray yes it's like okay we get it <laughs> <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean feloni has obviously been a huge presence and influence um within lucas film for a long time now mm-hmm. um and this is kind of his first foray into live action so that must be really exciting for him. Um, I think it's just kind of about introducing that name to a more general audience because obviously Star Wars fans, especially Star Wars animation fans, um, have followed and been aware of Filoni for a long time. But on a grander stage, I'm not so sure. He's, he's not a household name, obviously, in the way that George Lucas is. So Yeah, definitely not. He's kind of introducing him to a wider audience, which is nice. Yeah, no, so it's a fantastic opportunity for him to prove himself outside of that world of animation. So obviously he's very highly regarded for what he's done with the Clone Wars and Rebels and Resistance and everything else. But yeah, it's quite a different kettle of fish to work on a real set, in air quotes, with live actors. And yeah, it's just a very different proposition. So yeah, I'm really excited to see how he does with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's some nice quotes from John Favreau. I think, you know, those two have been friends for a while. Uh, that really came across to me during the panels they've done at Celebration and D23 and that. So they almost seem like brothers to me in the way they interact. <laughs> yeah, no, they're definitely on a level, I think. <laughs> yeah, they have an affinity. Yeah, they must have had lots of fun together working on this show. So Yeah. Perhaps for me, the most interesting paragraph is the one about Kathleen Kennedy and her comments on Dave. Mm. Um, yeah, sorry, I say that as if he's like my buddy too. Uh, <laughs> yeah, maybe he is. Uh, yeah, and this is the relevant part. If Lucasfilm president Kathleen Kennedy wants the insights of Lucas, she just calls him. They've known each other for a lifetime. To her, Filoni isn't a vital resource because he's a Lucas encyclopedia, but because he took what he learned from him about myth, filmmaking and technology and applied them to his own heart. There isn't a thing that we do in the storytelling space that I don't check with Dave, Kennedy said. What I find about Dave is you don't just sit down and have a discussion about plot or review characters inside the Star Wars world. You end up having meaningful, thoughtful discussions about what it is we're trying to say inside the storytelling. He has a lot of empathy. And yeah, I really like that quote because especially that part about how Filoni has taken what he learned from Lucas and then made that personal to him so I feel like that's 
broadly been the case with how Kathleen Kennedy has approached things and what she wants to get out of the creative people she works with because yeah that feels like a perfect encapsulation of what she expected and got from Ryan Johnson for example yeah and I think it's this appeals to me and I think maybe to you as well because it kind of positions there's this emphasis sometimes on the lore of Star Wars and how someone like Filoni will know all of these things about I mean, there was that Freddie Prince Jr. video a while back. I don't know if you saw that, but like, yeah, I did. <laughs> yeah, it's it kind of is about the the laws of the Star Wars universe and the law surrounding things like the mysticism of the Force and all that. And to me, as interesting as that stuff is, obviously we're Star Wars fans. It kind of comes secondary, and that stuff is shaped around the themes of the story they're trying to tell about humanity first and foremost. Yes. Um, and I think that's what Kathleen Kennedy is saying here, um, that for Dave and herself, it's the story that comes first. It's about, you know, the meaning for the characters and the themes that you're trying to explore. Um, and you're not just an encyclopedia because we can go to a shelf and find something that tells you all about how the force works or how the dark side works or whatever it is you're looking for. That's not really what matters. Yeah. No, definitely. It gives me a lot of confidence in the way they're approaching things and their priorities, basically, when it comes to Star Wars and what's important to people at Lucasfilm. Because, yeah, as far as I'm concerned, they have their priorities in the right place and they have done ever since the start of the sequel trilogy. So, yeah, Mm -hmm. very good stuff. Yeah, and then the other article from Anthony is about Ming-Na Wen, who is going to be a guest star in The Mandalorian and yeah it's just some insights into the character that she's playing so I'll very briefly read out like two paragraphs and then we can just discuss the article as a whole it's very long basically so I don't want to read out the whole thing Ming-Na will be playing the assassin Fennec Shand who crosses paths with Pedro Pascal's masked bounty hunter midway through the first season of the Disney Plus series, which launches with the streaming services debut on November 12th. We got our inspiration really from her name. The idea of a fennec fox came to mind when told Vanity Fair. She's tricky, and yet she's able to manoeuvre and survive and be stealthy, so very graceful and agile. I just love that whole image with the name. And yeah, the article as a whole, it doesn't give much detailed insight into the character in terms of like her motivations and her backstory there's just lots of mystery surrounding <laughs> everything but yeah the series is so close that we can wait for all the detail um are you excited for this character Kirsty? i am hugely excited um i i love the way that they're talking about her obviously you're right they're not giving too much away but that's kind of the point um, yeah with a character like this it's like there is a bit of mystery and it's not clear where her loyalties lie Ming-Na Wen herself says she's definitely someone who's loyal to herself. So, of course, in the Star Wars world, that immediately conjures to your mind someone like Han Solo, right? And then, yeah. Or, you know, so even someone like DJ, just someone who's like, it's not immediately clear what their internal motives are. Um, sometimes it'll turn out that they have a secret heart of gold and sometimes they screw other people over and they turn out to be the bad guy. Sometimes it'll be somewhere in between. Um, either way, I think it makes for interesting characters. And I'm a huge Mulan fan, so yes, oh my god, in Star Wars is incredibly exciting for me. Yeah, like I'm curious about whether I'm going to watch it and hear the voice and be like, oh my god, Mulan. Because <laughs> um, yeah, that was a while ago. That movie's like mm. over twenty years old now. So yeah. 
Yeah, like she looks absolutely amazing. Like she I is just gorgeous. Looked up and she's fifty five years old, which yeah. is wild. It's, yeah, she looks fantastic. Mm-hmm. And yeah, she sounds like a really cool character. And I love the hairstyle that she has going on, which apparently is very much tailored to the whole Fox theme Mm -hmm. as well. Um, There's a quote later on um, where she says, at first the idea was maybe just to have her hair be loose, an unkempt kind of thing. And I thought, well, she's going to be wearing a helmet and she's this stealth assassin. How great would it be if her hair has a bit of the Fennec Fox architecture to it? So the hairstylist came up with this great braiding system that just gives an idea of these triangular points like her ears. And yeah, I really like that sort of little creative touch that can be infused through the hair even. Yeah, so that's a nice bit of individuality for the character. Yeah, that's awesome. I always think that the costumes and hairstyles in Star Wars are so thoughtfully considered. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I need to do some reading about the costume designer for The Mandalorian because I'm so used to like reading about Michael Kaplan and kind of aware of his influences, but this will be a totally different aesthetic and reference point, so. Yeah, no, it's going to be really interesting. It's like even something like the music. I'm curious to like hear that, you know, and see how it does stuff differently because, yeah, we obviously identify John Williams as the sound of Star Wars and we've had other composers for Rogue One and Solo and they I think they both did a great job Mm. but yeah we have yet another different composer for The Mandalorian and I always find interesting to see how much they sort of skew towards the Williams style and how much they try to give something its own identity and definition because I think that's a very tricky balance to strike. Definitely it's really interesting to see how they yeah like you say kind of conform and also diverge um and put their own stamp on it i thought the solo soundtrack was so good um and you could definitely tease out those williams influences and of course he had like the han solo theme and everything but also stuff like the enfis nest music was just absolutely incredible yeah yeah i'm looking forward to seeing if there are any gems like that from the mandalorian yeah exactly lots to be discovered um yeah and then really the final thing that I wanted to cover in this segment um, is of course the release date of Disney (laughs) Plus in the UK and Western Europe so it also applies to Germany, France Italy and Spain Mm -hmm. Um, and the release date, drum roll is going to be 31st of March 2020 I'm sorry oh thank you (laughs) just really shit Yeah. Um, yeah you never know I might be able to like experience the Mandalorian for my dreams so <laughs> power of dreams might overcome this harsh harsh reality and still mm. allow me to watch the show and therefore talk about it with you Kirsty, on the show so I guess yeah. that might happen somehow but I've been watching all of these other podcasters kind of like announce that they're going to be doing their weekly reviews whether it's like part of their original show or they're doing like a second like an after show kind of thing mm-hmm. um I'm like God, this just isn't easy unless you live in the US, right? Because yeah. you're basically admitting that you have to pirate something to watch it. And it's like, I would love for you to take my money. Yeah, no, exactly. So I would readily give Disney my money for this, but apparently they don't want it right now. So fine. Yeah. I mean, fine. to be fair, we, we kind of assume that this is all streaming rights related yeah Um, no exactly i don't think it's spy i think if they could (laughs) release it globally at the same time i think they would have but yeah i think they have some sort of 
contract with Sky, which has a Disney Channel, and right. I can only assume that doesn't run out until next year, which is why they can't release Disney Plus yet. So it's disappointing for fans here, but it's just one of those cold, harsh realities, and it's all wrapped up in legalese and stuff that we don't, that we aren't privy to, mm-hmm. essentially. So yeah, I, I guess I'll forgive them one day. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's just a bit frustrating. So the thing is, it's such a global world nowadays, you know, and people in the UK, we can see all the hype and we can see all the reactions and we like participate in the build up just as much as anyone in the United States. Yeah, of course. So yeah, to then be excluded from the actual thing is a bit crap, but yeah. Yeah, it's gutting. Like you say, like, you know, people come over from the UK to even attend Celebration. So you see all of this build up and it'd be like getting the Rise of Skywalker three months later. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like the poor Japanese fans because that is their reality, which, yeah, I think they don't get it till January, which to be fair, it's not like several months later, but it's still not fun. So, yeah, poor Japan. Yeah. Yeah, if you're a Star Wars fan, you want to watch it as soon as possible. So, Yeah, at least we get the Rise of Skywalker one day before America, so maybe that's the ultimate revenge. <laughs> um, okay, cool. So, right, shall we move on to talk about some comments Daisy Ridley has said about the Rise of Skywalker? So, I believe she's speaking to a Portuguese website or outlet called Adoro Cinema, and then the interview was translated by the ever wonderful Slimo. So thank you very much to Slimo um, for your tireless work. Would you like to read out the excerpts from the interview that I have highlighted, Kirsty? Maybe we could read them out one by one and then talk about them on a case by case sort of basis. Okay. I love working with Adam, says Daisy. He's a phenomenal actor and is always so immersed in the character that it is not difficult to act with him. In the interrogation scene in episode 7, everything was very complex. We were repeating takes for a long time, and I remember thinking, how will I get to that same point with each new attempt? And Adam was so into the scene and gave me so much time. I don't know if anyone else would have done that. Yeah, I really like that quote because, yeah, I think we've all probably seen that audition tape of Daisy having to do the interrogation scene for her audition Mm -hmm. so they clearly decided early on that that was going to be a very critical character defining moment and yeah because it's such an important scene it had to be got right and the stakes had to feel like they were there and the emotional and the emotions had to be pitched in the right way and yeah so I can totally understand why it would be such a complex scene and I'm glad that the relationship between the actors is solid enough that it felt comfortable for her yeah it's very intense obviously (laughs) that scene there's a lot going on and both characters go on such a journey in such a quick space of time it's really pivotal to their arcs um yeah and yeah if they didn't work well together for that scene you just wouldn't really buy into it because so much is unsaid there um yes that's what originally well for me anyway that's what really grabbed me on to this dynamic and has been an obsession for the last four years um (laughs) yeah you know if we just had the film without these kind of intense scenes between ray and kylo ren i don't know if i would have been so interested in what was going to happen next sure you Um, probably wouldn't have a podcast well no (laughs) 
but yeah these kinds of scenes were so amazing and then yeah we got even more in the last jedi so i think the creators themselves knew and were very intentionally putting this together incredibly carefully and then had to make the right choices for the actors and not just the actors as individuals but how they would pair together yeah um and i just think they struck gold with this dynamic so yeah daisy's acknowledging that yeah no it's a really nice quote um cool yeah then i'll read the next bit um so daisy we were filming a big fight scene and we were like are you okay everything is all right is the distance good there has always been a concern for each other's safety and well-being i must have hit adam a few times once he hit my fingers but we finished the scene anyway and when we were done my god makes an expression of pain (laughs) I even asked for a minute. I thought I had broken my fingers. Um, so, yeah, again, it like underlines how well they work together and how much consideration there is between them, which is awesome. But, yeah, I can see that hurting. Adam's a big, powerful man. And, yeah, oh, God. I, I can, like, feel that, like, ghost pain sort of <laughs> on her behalf, just reading the description. It's like, ah. I'm guessing, again, this is her talking about the fight on the Death Star with all the yeah. water surrounding them because that seems to be like the one safe thing it's okay to talk about with Rey and Kylo Ren. Yes. Um, and I think she said elsewhere, or someone else did, maybe it wasn't Daisy, but we know that it took them six days to film that scene. Yeah. Which is incredible. Um, yeah. So it's clearly so yeah, very they, involved. <laughs> yeah, they must have been absolutely exhausted and just keep somehow retaining that same level of intensity. Yeah. Is an incredible amount of energy exerted. Yeah. No, it sounds very daunting and yeah, they must have both been in peak physical form, essentially. Next we've got um there was a scene that touched me a lot. It was our last day shooting in Jordan and the natural light was fading, and it was so exciting. It was just a short scene, we filmed very fast, but the crew was shaken in a way I had not seen before, and I thought, my god, if this is people's immediate reaction when the scene isn't even ready Imagine what it would be like to see it in the movies with the John Williams soundtrack and all that. It's pretty tantalising. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We're like so close, but yet so far from knowing what <laughs> yeah. she's talking about. I know. Well, my theory is, I think maybe Slimo posted this as well, um, that if she's talking about the natural light fading, it kind of sounds to me like those Vanity Fair covers. Mm, yeah. It certainly recalls that. Because, yeah, those covers are so beautiful and... I feel like there's got to be story relevance in there. So mm-hmm. it doesn't really dumb comment, of course, the story relevance. Well, um, yeah, you'd hope so. But I remember as well, when they finished the Jordan shoot, John Boyega was talking on Instagram about how they'd just done something amazing um, the day before. Right. So, yeah, it's something big. That might not have directly referred to this scene because Daisy says it was just a short one. But yeah. I feel like that whole sequence on Jordan has to be very important. So yeah there is Ali. it's such a stunning landscape and star wars has always loved its desert planets so i think it's gonna look stunning yeah. and, and of course she's yeah. not talking about the last day of shooting the entire movie yes about jordan which was months before they actually wrapped up so good to keep that in mind as well yeah exactly it's from like november or something i think mm. um and yeah, I just can't wait for that beautiful, beautiful footage, essentially, to pop in my eyeballs. <laughs> so, yeah, it'll be very good. Um, okay, cool. 
So then the next thing to discuss is that we have some words from Carrie Fisher's brother who spoke about the original plan for Leia in episode 9. Um, so this is from Yahoo. Um, I'll read quite a bit of it but not quite all of it because some of it is like oh this is Leia's role in The Last Jedi which we don't need to cover. Um, so in the original version of the ninth and final installment The Rise of Skywalker Luke's sister Leia was going to emerge as a full, fully-fledged Jedi warrior, complete with her very own lightsaber. That's according to no less an authority than Fisher's real-life brother, Todd Fisher, who filled us in on what the plan was for his sister's iconic character prior to her sudden death in December 2016. She was going to be the big payoff in the final film, Fisher reveals exclusively. She was going to be the last Jedi, so to speak. That's cool, right? People used to say to me, why is it that Carrie never gets a lightsaber and chops up some bad guys? (laughs) That's not the spirit of Star Wars, Todd. It's not the spirit of Mm -hmm. Star Wars. Fisher says, noting that Alec Guinness was roughly the same age when Obi-Wan Kenobi battled Darth Vader in A New Hope. Obi-Wan was in his prime when he was Carrie's age. Unfortunately, a version of The Rise of Skywalker where Leia picks up her father and brother's chosen weapon can only exist in our imaginations. After Fisher's death, her alter ego's arc had to be reconceived by returning director J.J. Abrams, who previously directed the actress in 2015's The Force Awakens. The truth is that J.J. Abrams was great friends with Carrie. He had an extraordinary sense of love for her. It was that love that led the filmmaker to make a bold and creatively risky decision, take unused footage of Leia left over from The Force Awakens and make it part of The Rise of Skywalker. They had eight minutes of footage, Fisher tells us. They grabbed every frame and analysed it, and then reverse-engineered it, and got it into the story in the right way. It's kind of magical. Fisher understandably declines to elaborate on how exactly Abrams reverse-engineered the unused footage into a satisfying farewell to such a beloved and groundbreaking character, but he does hint that Abrams has found a way to address both losses in an emotional way. This is, in its own way, a payoff. It's Carrie talking to us all from beyond. The beautiful thing about the concept of the Force is that there is no real death. You just exist in another dimension. So Carrie is looking down or sideways or wherever, and is still part of us. To be able to see that, it's magical stuff only in the movies. So yeah, I think there's really beautiful words from Todd there. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah, definitely. I think what's interesting is that we're not... It's not clear what version is this original version that they're talking about. Um, yeah. So my guess would be that he's talking about a very early, like, Trevorrow draft. Yeah, that would make sense because Trevorrow's first draft was obviously written before Carrie passed away. Mm. So, yeah, like, because, yeah, he, you'd like to think he wouldn't be allowed to talk about all this stuff if any of it is still carrying through to the final cut of the movie. Exactly. So yeah, like, is either Todd Fisher radically overstepping the mark and saying things he should not be saying, which is possible, or yeah, he's just talking about discarded story ideas. And yeah, the proof will be in the pudding when we see the movie. Um, But yeah, it's very interesting to even think about because I I like these ideas. I I think some of the ways in which Todd describes them, they betray, like, he's kind of like a casual approach, you know, like, Leia, chopping up bad guys, woo! Well, Which there is a fair amount ass, of that as but... well. I know it's never the core story because it's supposed to be about love and forgiveness, but yes, <laughs> it, it does happen. You're right. Luke chops up some bad guys in the Return of the Jedi. So, 
yeah, it's not without that as an aspect. Um, but yeah, I'm just thinking about a scene that would require Leia to do that in any permutation of The Rise of Skywalker. <laughs> it's quite cheap. <laughs> I bet Carrie would own a scene like that, though, if she did have a scene where she got a lightsaber and got to trash some bad guys. Like, have her yeah. head Palpatine or something. Great. It's like her Mrs. Weasley moment. Not my son, you bitch. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. The thought of that is both awesome and really sad because we're not going to have it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, and I have faith based on, well, there's another piece afterwards about how Billy feels about everything in regards to Leia's role and what it meant to her and Carrie. But um, I think ultimately what it comes down to is, is the family happy? And it seems like they are very proud of what they've been able to achieve yes. to Leia and Carrie with episode nine. That's what matters most. So, yeah. you know, sounds like this isn't what happens. That's how Todd's framing it, that there was a moment when Carrie might have been wielding a lightsaber, but now they're going with footage they already had, which makes sense. And I'm sure that JJ's done an amazing job. So, yeah, I think we can cross off the idea of Leia wielding a lightsaber because you're right, Todd would not be able to talk about it so openly like this. Yeah. No, exactly. So, yeah, like based on like Todd's interview and what Billy like has had to say, which we'll talk about in a moment, it just makes me really glad that they're so happy with how it's been executed. And yeah, just excited to see it for myself, essentially. So yeah, good vibes. Mm -hmm. And well, I guess we have more solid information here in that he's saying that they had eight minutes of footage. I think that's the most specific we've gotten. Yes. Um, whether all eight minutes of that make it in is another thing because they yeah. would have had to make sure that it was actually workable and relevant to the story they wanted to tell. But Yeah. So I'd be surprised if they used all of that footage. I think it will be like a very brief in terms of time on camera, like part for Leia. But I think it'll be very, very significant in terms of emotional resonance and how they use the character because she can feature very prominently without necessarily being on screen all that much because you can have other characters talk about her and yeah engage with her and stuff so bring it on i say um okay cool so then we have an amazing piece from billy lord um which is in time magazine and basically it's this whole article that billy wrote herself so it's not an interview or anything in the way that the todd thing is and yeah she's just so eloquent that I can only say go and read it for yourselves, essentially, because she's inherited her mother's talents. Yeah, so what did you think about this piece, Kirsty? How did you respond to well, it? Well, I felt very privileged to even read it, to be honest, because it's incredibly personal. You yeah. can tell that Billy's truly writing from the heart here, and it can't have been easy for her to write. Yes. Um, so she kind of is talking a lot about her relationship that was it sounds understandably complex with Leia as a character and with Star Wars as a whole because to have this thing that took up so much of the wider world perception of your mum who was a real person to you um, yeah. versus this character um, I, yeah I, I guess to any child of an incredibly famous actor that would be kind of hard to wrangle with but with someone as iconic as Carrie and Leia um, yeah. who means so much to people, it would have been kind of hard to re wrestle with that as a child, I think. 
and really kind of speaks to that and the journey that she went on in terms of deciding to watch Star Wars as she got older and embrace Leia and understand why she was so important to so many people. Yeah. Um, and then decide to become an actress herself against her parents' wishes at first. Um, but she got an audition for Star Wars and then she was obviously cast as Connick's. And her mum saw her on set and just thought the acting was clearly what she was meant to be doing with her life and told her so, kind of gave it her blessing. Yeah. And then Billy's obviously gone on to land other amazing roles. Um, yeah, it's really special to read. And kind yeah. of how they've decided to go forward with Leia for episode nine and what that means to Billy to have that last film with her mum. Oh. Yeah. No, it's really beautiful, and she expresses the same faith and confidence as Todd, pretty much, in like the approach that JJ's decided on, and how they're featuring Leia in the movie. And yeah, it just felt so powerful to read about that relationship between Billy and her mum, and Billy and the character, and how they're all so closely intertwined. Because yeah, it's just really raw, and I think she just has totally inherited her mother's gift for words and expressing herself because yeah there's just this beautiful clarity to the thought and yeah like just go and read it basically we were initially toying with like oh should we read some of this out but ultimately you can't do it justice by just reading out like some random paragraphs you need to read the whole thing and get the proper context for it so yeah check it out and i i can't speak to any other fans you know the stuff around Carrie and Leia is really complicated and everyone is going to have their own feelings about it and also recognise that what's most important is her family's feelings yeah Um, so reading this made me feel a lot more at ease with how things are progressing with Leia's story as well Um, because however it turns out I know that Billy and Todd are happy with it so that's the most important thing yeah Um, it makes it easier to reconcile doesn't it whatever happens yeah so i'm really glad that she published this yeah that was a really beautiful piece right so should we move on to talk about resistance because we have not spoken about resistance for a while (laughs) it's safe to say just a little disclaimer that i have not been able to re-watch these episodes for the purposes of this discussion i've been watching the show since it aired again season two started but i've only had a chance to watch each episode once and uh, kind of in a distracted sense because I'm also looking after a baby. So, <laughs> it's a very it's valid kind of like reason. Half watching. You never really have your full attention on it. So, yes. Uh, yeah. I have been overall really enjoying it. Um, yeah. I loved season one of Resistance. So, I've seen other people say, oh, I think season two is so much better. I do, I do think it's great, but I enjoy the show in general. So, um, it's not like it's a huge step up for me. I just, I really enjoy the show and I'm already sad that this is the last season so yeah no it's a shame because it's really just continuing to prove itself as proper quality Star Wars storytelling and yeah because obviously we had that weird experience where we saw the first episode at Celebration and then it was like this six month wait or whatever it was for this show to start up again properly and yet in the meantime, all sorts of things have happened, including you having a baby. So it's like stepping through this portal into this next phase of resistance. And yeah, like I'm really impressed by how it's been developing. And I especially really love the first three episodes of this season. And 
like I feel no qualms about saying it's because they have that heavy Tam focus and yeah. I've really come to love that character she's just the total standout for me <laughs> same I mean I love Kaz and Niku and Tora and everyone as well yeah but um to have Tam as the contrast for season two is so good yeah um yeah, I'm, I can't wait to see where it goes. And I think, yeah, for similar reasons, the last... Is it the last two episodes that Tam hasn't been Yeah, featured? that's right. She wasn't in Hunt on Cellsaw 3, and she wasn't in The Engineer. Yeah, so I've enjoyed both of those episodes, and I actually appreciated that Sonara played a larger part in The Engineer, because mm-hmm. I was kind of missing her too. But, um, yeah, I think because Tam was basically entirely absent, I... Yeah, I think I prefer the earlier episodes just because I love the contrast with what they're doing between her and Kaz. Yeah. Um, and that really complicated um, friendship between them now that's been tested. Yeah, for me, I think it feels like the most mature aspect of the storytelling. And it's the part of the most like emotional depth and complexity, which is always like my crack when it comes to Star Wars, basically. Yeah. It's like, give me emotional depth and complexity. And there is like emotional depth and complexity to different extents in those other episodes, especially the engineer. Because mm. I think that has some really cool character development for Niku, Definitely. where he actually has to display facets of his personality that you simply don't get for the most part of that character yeah like it's just tam guys tam is that good she is and yeah i think that's what it is that they succeeded in season one so all that build-up meant that we hugely sympathize with this character and we can totally see why she's made the choices that she did because she felt so betrayed and left out by kaz and um yiga's choices to not tell her what they were doing for the resistance um, that she just felt kind of abandoned like oh they're not my friends then they, they didn't care about me um, yeah. so totally understandable that she would sign up for the first order um, and you just wonder where her arc's going to go from there yeah do you have a favourite episode of the five that we've seen so far not a clear favourite actually mm. do you yeah. um, I think for me probably live fire which is the latest one to date to feature Tam <laughs> because yeah, I'm predictable like that. And it's basically got this great contrast between the aces and their training to be combat pilots, essentially, because they have experience as racing pilots, but that's a very different type of thing. And then that's sort of intercut with these scenes where Tam and the other recent recruits to the First Order are being trained in First Order combat techniques and what's expected of them. And yeah, I just felt like that episode perfectly embodied that contrast we've been talking about between Tam's experience and what's going on over with the Colossus and Kaz and those characters. Hmm. Oh, for that one, I actually really enjoyed Hype. Um, yes, he was yeah. good. He, he's such a great character because he has this front and then someone like Tora, who's clearly so emotionally intelligent, she can kind of like use reverse psychology on him to get him to open up and actually say that he's kind of afraid and um and then Kaz like won him over by the end of the episode and is kind of welcomed in um yeah I think he's really sweet yeah no I think he's probably my favorite of the aces yeah um apart from Tora because yeah she's Tora and she's awesome um but yeah like he's just like a character of many complexities essentially and that front is 
a definite front that when it falls away you've got this really interesting wounded character behind it and yeah it's really cool to see that explored oh i'm interested as well to see if there's any payoff for his and tam's friendship too yeah because even at that point he you know he was clearly hurt mostly from kaz in terms of saying your it's your fault that tam left yeah um so clearly he still cares about her greatly uh, so I'm kind of interested to see if that ever becomes a factor again for Tam, like if she's aware of that. Because I feel like she's still kind of, I don't know. I mean, the reason she left is that she didn't feel like she had anyone on the platform, which must yeah. have included hype. So, Yeah, it's one of those tragic aspects of the storytelling. And I definitely think that will come back. So I can see that being similar to the whole twist with Tam joining the First Order in season one where you're like, oh, they have all these elements, like Tam being left out and frustrated and annoyed all the time. Like, But I guess that's going to go nowhere. It's just been the status quo for this many episodes and nothing's happened with it. But then it turned out it was all so deliberate and done so intentionally. So, yeah, I feel like if they've set up that dynamic between Hype and Tam, it will have some kind of payoff. Yeah, I think my concern maybe is that I don't want it to be too redundant compared with Kaz and Tam's relationship. Yeah, that's true. So, that's be something slightly different there, but they have a history that's different from how Kaz knows Tam, so. Yeah. Exactly. So, I have faith in them, but we will see. Um, another thing that I liked about Live Fire is Rucklin. And... <laughs> Space Malfoy. <laughs> he so is, though. It's just, it's so funny to me, like, that they just, like, seem to have, like, stumbled into joining the First Order. Yeah, they just happen to be together. (laughs) (laughs) Like, the First Order just, like, has really lax recruitment policies. They're basically these total randoms. I think they just want everyone to join, because the idea is that they take over the entire galaxy, so. (laughs) Like, yeah, I guess Rucklin does have experience as a pilot, so, yeah, it makes sense, I guess. And I also love that that character who's like his friend, but yeah. d- doesn't really have any lines. Right. Like, she's there too. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta have a like, sidekick. And I, and I guess cynically, part of it is just that they have these character models. And they're like, ah, it's cheaper to use the character model. Let's say she joined the first order too. Why not? But, yeah. The package deal. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. I feel like they might be setting up some sort of redemption for Rucklin. I'm finding him less of a twit when he's well, in the first I, yeah. I'd like to think so. I mean, we never got that truly for Malfoy. We got it in some aspects, but sorry to keep comparing him, but he really does remind me of Malfoy. Um, but yeah, as this interesting thing where he's like concerned for Tam, but then also, I don't know. It's like, yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? That their loyalties are being tested from the First Order, but do they understand really the consequences of handing over that kind of information i'm I'm not sure tam entirely does yeah because tierney's they're trying trying to make things clear to her that it's like okay you're with us now you it's your responsibility to hand over all of this kind of information to help us take down your friends she's like yeah well they're not my friends anymore it's like okay but do you understand that you will then be responsible for their deaths (laughs) yeah i'm not sure i'm not sure that's like truly hitting home so yeah there's a certain element of denial so I like how they made such a point during the First Order flying instructions to have it shown that Tam is still such a fundamentally good person in terms of yeah. her approach to things. And she's not just about her glory. She wants to help her 
like fellow pilots. Yeah, that reminded me of Finn actually. Yeah. So. No, definitely. And yeah, you can see that she's made uncomfortable when she's forced to confront the fact that, oh, that's not okay. Because, <laughs> um, yeah, she's clearly having it sink in a bit more how messed up the First Order is, essentially, mm. in terms of its philosophies. Yeah. Yeah. That instructor was such a great character. Like, I think she's called Galak, and I love her. Yeah. First Order has a lot of great bad female ladies. <laughs> bad guys the bad girls <laughs> like, i love her and tierney i think yeah <laughs> i'm i wonder if tierney's actually gonna have some kind of redemption arc i don't know yeah there are all kinds of possibilities i do wonder but i feel like they're setting her up to be really really evil like there's that scene towards the end of the engineer where she's basically like yeah, I want you to kill Nina when you come across her again, please. Yeah, she's pretty ruthless. Yeah. So I think she's a great villain precisely because she does seem so nice. She's all like sweetness and light with Tam when she's trying to recruit her to the cause. And she's very convincing with it. It doesn't seem like an act. But then you have these glimpses where, yeah, she's completely cold as ice. Yeah, I think it's interesting because I do think a lot of these characters are firmly convinced that they are on the right side of history. Oh yeah, the thing is, like, I don't think she's like, oh yeah, I'm so bad. It's, it's that you know, this is my duty, and as she said to Tam, I think mostly towards the end of season one when they were like recruiting her, that they're trying to bring order to the galaxy. Like they're really trying to justify it to themselves in their own minds. So, yeah, no, it's true. Like there really aren't that many cackling, haha, I'm evil villains in Star Wars apart from Palpatine. Um, yeah. And I love Palpatine, but yeah, for, for the most part, there is at least some shade in the villains of Star Wars, which I yeah. appreciate. I don't know why, I just get different vibes from someone like Commander... Is it Commander Pyre? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. He seems a little more, like, bad for the sake of it. I don't know yes. why it's different. <laughs> Maybe I'm being sexist. <laughs> I, I think it's also the fact that you don't see his face. Yeah, because... true. Yeah, all the humanity is quite literally stripped away. Yeah, and I guess he's reminding me of Phasma. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. He is basically male Phasma with different colouring. <laughs> of course, at this point, there is no Phasma, right? If they've have they already gone through the TLJ timeline. Yeah. yeah no, it's true. So Phasma's gone. <laughs> no, yeah. no acknowledgement of that. Phasma bites the dust. <laughs> 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 like what I really want to see at some point is General Hux being made a fool of by all the badass women in the First Order I almost don't care what the circumstances are it could be like the First Order life day party like just something Just yeah, I, yeah. I would love to see Tierney interact with either Hux or Kylo like have some connection to what we know as the First Order in the sequel trilogy yeah that'd be really interesting yeah, I feel like we bit. saw Tierney interact with Kylo in the trailer for the season. Oh, that's true. Yeah, sorry, I forgot about that. Yeah, so we're going to get that at least. So that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I wonder when Kylo's going to appear. I feel like that would be quite a climactic thing, but we'll see, I guess. Yeah, is it going to be before the Rise of Skywalker? I feel like it has to be, because actually, in that clip, he was clearly doing something naughty. So... <laughs> <laughs> be a bad boy. If we're going for redemption, it's like, you've got to get the bad stuff out of the way. 
<laughs> yeah, there's that. There's got to be early on, and he's got to think better of it all and be like, oh dear, <laughs> maybe I was wrong after all. Maybe, although you know, at the start of the Rise of Skywalker, he's probably still like, yeah, ruthless First Order, we're in the right, and then, oh, but there's Ray. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hopefully there's like teary eyes and sobbing. Um, yeah, and. Just briefly, I wanted to bring up that character of Nina again from The Engineer. So I feel like she's one of the most interesting like guest characters that we've had for a while. And I feel like she could realistically come back. Oh, I think she has to based on what they said at the end there. Yeah, if Stephanie sends something up and that is a character who is ripe for redemption, essentially. Because, yeah, yeah that's the ultimate sympathetic backstory to be kidnapped as a child and enslaved to the huts. That's pretty rough it's a background yeah and I feel so sad for Niku as well because he really did put his trust in her yeah yeah and it's like a child isn't it Niku you know he has that like trusting quality that you'd expect to find in a five-year-old well I think and, Kaz Kaz yeah. says like that's what we love about you don't feel like you have to change yeah so in a way I would like her to have a redemption arc for Niku's sake so that he would feel once again validated in terms of trusting people and believing in that innate goodness yeah. Um, ra- rather than having to learn from it and kind of harden and yeah, get really not... cynical. Yeah. yeah, I don't want him to. I want him to be validated in that because you should want to see the goodness in people. Yeah, cynical Niku would just be too heartbreaking. It's like <laughs> there truly is no good left in this world. <laughs> yeah, but at least Kaz is like, yeah, that's what we love about you. So yeah, no, which I think is a really great message. Because, yeah, like, as you say, I think it's important to have faith in people and trust in people. Like, within reason, of course. (laughs) Yeah, you probably shouldn't have faith in and trust um, Tierney, for example. Yeah. It's complicated, though, because I also completely understand why Sonara was suspicious. And and because she knew the pirates, she was like, it's not them. Trust me, like, I know. Yeah. I know they're pirates, so you think they're bad. But actually, I think there's something up with this Nina character. Which yeah. is right. So Yeah. No, it's nice to see Sonara get vindicated. Yeah, and I really liked seeing her and Kaz interact again because it was kind of like I don't know if it was just like me imagining it or just because they hadn't managed to get to it again in an episode, but it was kind of strange to have her like I knew she was on the Colossus and though she was like cropping up and things, but her and Kaz seemed weirdly emotionally distant after mm. how how close they had been last season. Yeah. So it was, it was nice to see them together again. Definitely, yeah. I'm curious to see where that relationship's taken. It could just be like steady from here and that they're just buddies. Mm. Um, but yeah, there were moments like emotional intensity between them in the first season, like like you say. And yeah, it would be nice to see it reach like a bit deeper sometimes. So mm-hmm. yeah, we will see. Um, but yeah, I think it's shaping up really well the season so far. I really hope we get Tam back in the next episode. So I feel like she's overdue now that we've had two episodes about her. But we'll find out soon. So Yeah, I'm yeah. just really interested to see how the season is going to coincide with the release of The Rise of Skywalker. Like what episodes they're going to choose to have around that time period in December. Yeah. And, and how is it going to continue after? Um because they'll have consciously done it in a way that would line up so yeah no definitely it's going to be very interesting to see how all that stuff synergizes I'm not sure if synergizes is an actual word but you know what I mean (laughs) synchronizes yes 
synchronizes probably makes more sense. Like, yeah, a synergy is not a word you should try to do anything too adventurous with. Yeah, and I think same with Mandalorian as well. I think obviously any connections between the Mandalorian and the Rise of Skywalker are going to be much less overt because the Mandalorian takes place so far ahead of the Rise of Skywalker. But it would be interesting if they go for anything, even if it's like a vague thematic like link, you know? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we will see. So, yeah. I, actually, I'm not sure. Maybe, yeah, I think maybe... Does the Mandalorian wrap up before the Rise of Skywalker comes out? I think it might. Oh, well, I don't know. You should look it up. Yeah. So, yeah, I just checked. And the final episode of The Mandalorian looks to be released on December 27th. Okay. So, yeah, there's one episode that comes out after the Rise of Skywalker. So, that will be interesting. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I feel like that's a pretty good place to end things for now. So I'm Rachel, and you can find me on Stars Nonsense on Tumblr. I'm Kirsty, and you can find me at Bastilla Bay on Tumblr. And you can find us both on Twitter at Scavengers Horde. Until next time, bye. Bye. bye.